Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. The generosity of people is just breathtaking. And um, for all of the shameful things that have been done to refugees over the last couple of decades, the story that I love talking about is actually the incredible kindness that's out there, the incredible compassion, the courage and resilience of the refugees themselves, and the generosity. There are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Australians who actively, every year, whether it's donating or taking political action, who really care about a fair go for refugees and care about work. Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thank you to our major sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their wonderful social media support. Neon Treehouse are your go-to full-service digital marketing agency for bright and imaginative solutions. Learn more at neontreehouse.com. I'm also thrilled to announce that Arepa have joined us as our new drink sponsor for 2024. I've been pretty obsessed with Arepa since about 2020. It's a healthy brain drink that optimizes cognitive performance, but also tastes awesome. I'll be sharing more about Arepa throughout the year, but for now you can try it for yourself and get an exclusive 25% discount by heading to drinkarepa.com.au and entering promo code HOP25 on checkout. Linked also in the show notes for your convenience. This week on the podcast, I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Con Karapanagiotidis OAM. Con is the CEO and founder of the Asylum Seeker Resource Center, or ASRC, where he's been running the show for over 22 years. Founded in 2001, the ASRC is Australia's largest human rights organization, providing support to people seeking asylum. They are an independent not-for-profit whose programs support and empower people seeking asylum to maximize their own physical, mental, and social well-being. 22 years ago, Con identified a need to create a food bank for refugees and asylum seekers. ASRC now provides a far wider range of services and has now supported over 30,000 people in need since its inception and 7,000 in the past year alone. Con and the ASRC's work is more important now than ever with increasing cost of living pressures, increasing social and political divide in our society and a burning need to return to a compassion and shared humanity. Con and the ASRC are building important bridges in this space through sharing our recipes and food to bring community together. This is a key part of our conversation, and in particular, we discuss Con's cookbook Philoxenia, as well as the launch of the Feast for Freedom campaign for 2024. Con was recently named Melbourneian of the Year and is an accomplished author as well of the, of the aforementioned cookbook, Philoxenia, which he co-created with his mum, Sia. Personally, I was really excited to have this conversation with Con, having admired his work in the for-purpose sector for many years. It exceeded all my expectations, and I'm sure you'll feel Con's compassion and warmth throughout. I'm also thrilled that ASRC have partnered with us for the month, and I'm looking forward to sharing more with you about Feast for Freedom, Philoxenia, and more of the wonderful work Con and their team at the Asylum Seeker Resource Center are up to. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Con as much as I did. 
Con, wonderful to have you uh, at Humans of Purpose. Uh, it's an honor. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. It's an absolute pleasure. It's a privilege. I, I just want to say that uh, I don't say this to all podcast guests to buzz them up before we start, but ASRC, uh, Asylum Resource Seeker Center, uh, ASRC, ARSC. ASRC. You've got to write the first one. Always get it wrong. Thank you. Um, I've been a huge fan of the organization, and I even checked my inbox to see that in 2006, I was involved in some food relief at schools uh, that were delivering food to ASRC. And um, certainly lots of emails in my inbox about wanting to volunteer at ASRC. So it's an honor to actually make this happen. Thank you so much. to start off, I mean, your journey has been fascinating. More recently, Melbourneian of the Year, 2023, which is a huge honour, and I'd love to get stuck into that. But first of all, I want to hear about your origin story, what it's like growing up in a um, migrant family mm-hmm. um, in the, the small town of Mount Beauty, regional uh, Victoria, how you felt growing up and, and put, set the scene for us, growing up there, what it was mm-hmm. like, and what kind of trajectory did it sort of set you on? Yeah, I, I think, first of all, I think as adults, we we live a life that I think has underneath it a couple of key themes. We uh, we play out our generational trauma, generational resilience, uh, our family's story, and the way in which we shape ourselves. And I think my childhood was pivotal in shaping the, the man that I am today, good and bad. Uh, grew up in a little country town called Mount Beauty. My parents were tobacco farmers. They'd come as migrants from Greece the most brutal of work. Uh, we were in a little town where there's two Greek families and a population of a couple of thousand, of maybe a few more Italian families. But the lessons I learned were the lessons of not belonging and of not being seen as Australian. I even remember when I was probably eight or nine, the teacher's going, put up your hand if you're Australian. I was the only kid that did it, and the teacher was furious. What a like, lovely welcoming question to ask. The teacher was furious. They're like, but you are kind of going, no, I'm Greek. <laughs> And it took me into my 40s before I, I thought of myself as Greek Australian because the pressure to assimilate is so deep. My parents were welcomed and they were treated well, though they worked really hard. But I learned the lessons of, of what it's like to experience racism, what it's like to not belong, what it's like to feel like you're the other, what it's like to be bullied, and also watching my parents struggle and be exploited, which is what they were in reality, the work they did on those farms and understood just my privilege and just understood how hard people work. And then when I was, a, you know, years later as a man, just realizing how your freedom, your safety and your choices is an absolute lottery. Mm. And that, you know, go back a century ago, and my yaya and papu, they were refugees fleeing the Bundian genocide. My dad, when he was alive, you know, would tell me about the Nazis occupying his village when he was a little boy. Mm. Or I'd be, you know, I was the first to go to high school in my family. Like, and that's just luck. And I think we've lost an understanding of that these days. We think we're entitled, what we deserve, you know, we're special. And all I am is lucky, lucky yeah. to be here. It's a beautiful sense of um, gratitude sort of comes across. In- without gratitude and without humility, I think we lose our ways. We let hubris and ego mm. be the masters of us. And I think those things breed the worst of our society. When you talk about um, that feeling of um, not necessarily uh, feeling like you belonged or um, not feeling like you were Australian Mm. or accepted or a bit different, is the opposite of that the feeling of being welcome and belonging? Yeah, I I often talk at work at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre about the importance of radical welcome, about the importance of welcoming the stranger of, of love, and that when people feel welcomed, people feel seen. And there's such a pressure on migrants and refugees when they come to this country, this incredible country, this Australia, the oldest living culture on earth. 
uh, it's a pretty amazing place. And But the pressure to fit in and the pressure to lose our language, cut out the length of our names, you know, like, Garapan and Yoti, this. You haven't uh, done that, which is no, fantastic. Refuse. Unless you haven't, it was much longer no, before. Never would. <laughs> <laughs> that would be. But never I have. would. But, but that pressure to anglicize yourself and yeah. that pressure to fit in, and yet people are happy to appropriate the parts of our culture to wear us like a second skin, mm. you know, our food, our music, um, our looks, you know, in the way, you know, yep. exoticize all this stuff. Um, but they don't want to see all of us. And I think we've lost something there. I think there's an importance around to be welcome means we see all of you, your stories, your origin, your culture, your history, your politics, your values, and we accept all of you, not we don't cherry pick the parts of you that that are comfortable and easy for us. Yeah. I mean, that resonates with me deeply. I mean, it just makes me think of my dad's dad who um, came across um, from Perth. With He was originally in Perth with his um, my great-grandfather, Maor, who was an um, immigrant from Ukraine. Hmm. And when my grandfather, Rufus, the late Rufus, arrived uh, at Fremantle Port hmm. and told uh, the, the, the port officer what his name was because he wanted to start unloading ships, he said, nah, that's too long. Change it to Davis. But, but, but that, and that's now our name. But but you think about what is lost in that? Yeah. Like, you know, what is lost? Like refugees and migrants, when they have to leave their country, either fleeing for their lives or for a better life, mm-hmm. there's usually just a couple of things that, that they're able to carry with them, their name, yep. their language, if they were lucky enough to be able to speak it, their food. And food is language as well. Yeah. And food is meaning. Well, it is. And, and for migrants and refugees, I think food is like the social armor that we bring to a new country. It's what allows us to be humanized. It's what allow us to say to people, we are human beings. It's like that social scaffolding that we kind of build to allow us to build that connection. Because once people start sharing our food and enjoying our food, something that's not threatening and feels safe, then they also start socializing. They start having relationships. They start, I mean, this is the universal story everywhere. And food is so powerful. And the other powerful thing about food is when we have a seat at the table together, it's one of the rare times when you're breaking bread with someone mm-hmm that everyone's sitting at the table as equals and food invites you into a person's culture as a complete person, like come and hear my stories, come and hear my journey, come and learn about my culture. Food is an invitation to be welcomed and food is an invitation to be seen. Uh, But it needs to be part of a bigger story because if the only thing we see of a culture is people's food, then we're actually stereotyping them and we're reducing them and stripping them of their humanity, just like stripping them of their name. What's, What's lost in something like that? Yeah. For thousands of years, that that name might have been carried, and suddenly it's gone in the moment. Yeah, and, and so, so for you, them? maybe food. Um, it's funny because maybe a lot of people would assume that it's all about food, and that's what does it. But I think what you're saying here is food um, allows us to open a conversation that matters. Well, it does. So if I think about the things that I draw on from my culture as a Greek Australian, I draw on philoxenia, so a word in Greek which is to welcome the stranger, love of the stranger, to welcome the refugee, and philotimo, to be the servant to love the importance of leading with love. So the values I draw on is is family, community, sacrifice, resilience, work ethic, thinking of that you're part of something bigger than just yourself, that there's not an individual in that. And food is one of the ways, as I saw and learned from my mum and dad, of, of showing love and building connection. Food is uh, a path 
to something deeper and more profound. It's not the food you're cooking, it's the experience you're creating by sharing that meal. And so for you growing up, was food sort of a gateway to acceptance and belonging a little bit? Oh, it was an interesting one. My, my parents would be working late at night on the tobacco farm. So when I was probably six or seven, I have my first memories of trying to cook up sausages and baked beans and burning them. And But my mum would always on weekends make beautiful food. And for me, I think food wasn't so much a gateway of acceptance in the broader community, but it was within my family around connecting to my mum and dad. My dad was not your traditional man, and he would love to cook. He'd grow the most beautiful tomatoes, make the richest Greek salads and the most beautiful soups. And that was his way of showing love when he didn't have the language, the toolkit. He never had the chance. He was too busy making sure his family could survive. And in later years, it's the way that I got close to my mum is through our shared love of cooking. So I think food has allowed me to build intimacy and closeness with my parents. And then when I was a you know, young man, it allowed me to build a social network. Mm. It was my safe way of connecting to others. So yeah, once I was you know, probably in my 20s, food was really critical in opening up a world that I was that I didn't think I could have. Yeah, so I think what you were saying there about the, the welcoming um, of the stranger and the, that the service, the, the selfless service of others mm. is such a beautiful thing. And when I think about food and when we sit down at a table together and share our culture and cuisine, you ever noticed how hard it is to not be happy when you're experiencing yeah. someone else's food? It's impossible not to be happy because there's a joy in that. And there's a generosity in that because this is the beauty of, of sharing a meal. And, and you, and the importance of that, especially at a time now in a cost of living crisis where food security is out of reach for most Australians and most people are not actually being nourished with good food. They haven't got the, the means or the time to make food with love and food that actually nourishes and fills your heart and your soul and your body. But when people get those opportunities, it's the reason why for 20 years we put on a, a hot lunch at the ASRC and people from like 60 different countries, doesn't matter if they don't speak the same languages, they can be from every continent on earth, but they have the universal language of breaking bread. And there was a shared understanding. You could have any background, any country, any faith, and when you're sharing a meal together, everyone understands the act of sharing a meal. And most cultures that we work with are, are cultures of welcome. Yeah. And so there's no more profound way than to start with food. I think I also think like many cultures have these great rules around no business or no politics at the table, yeah. and, and that also helps. Well, the really interesting thing also with politics as well is about we keep politicizing the wrong things. Mm-hmm. Like what we should be politicizing is why are our national leaders in this country not tackling climate change, food insecurity, violence against women, the failure of the referendum, refugee rights? You know, why are we tackling the real issues? What is being politicized instead are things like, you know, trying to, you know, celebrating genocide by having Australia Day on January the 26th, you know, creating division and fear around refugees. Like we keep politicizing the wrong things as well. And I think the beautiful thing when you share a meal it's this beautiful humanitarian thing because you're actually going, ah, we're people. And I've been blessed in my life to travel from everywhere from Syria to Iran to Tibet. And wherever I've gone, what I've found is the universal experience is people have the same things in common. They love their families. They want to be safe. They want their culture to be celebrated. They want to wake up with, with peace and feel like they've got a purpose. That is a universal truth no matter where you go. Mm. People want peace freedom, safety, and love. And that's what we need to keep returning back to. That's what we lose too much of these days. That's that's beautifully said. You have a, um, a very close and strong relationship with your mother, mm. Sia. Uh, is that correct pronunciation? It is correct, yeah. 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 Um, and 
how was that important to to write this book for you? Because I, I yeah. think you know it's such a personal thing to sort of chronicle a relationship through yeah. a book in a way. It, it is, and I think you know I lost my dad when I was twenty. So my dad Leo is a beautiful man. He worked so hard, sacrificed so much, and I had to leave school at the age of nine. And as my mum gets old, I'm going. I'm I'm going to miss the same stories and the same experiences that I thought I would have time for with my dad. And so when I wrote this Greek cookbook, Philoxenia sit at my table, I wanted to share it with my mum and I wanted it to be her recipes and her stories and, and share my stories too, but I wanted it to be something I created with my mum. And it's been a really precious and special thing. And to watch my mum at the age of 75 suddenly becoming a mini celebrity, like she's sitting there going <laughs> on the ABC breakfast with Michael Rowland she and doing it? her first book signing. Oh, yeah. And she'll be like, oh, was it the, I was at the supermarket and someone came up to me and recognized me <laughs> and they wanted a photo with me and she loves it because my mum never had the spotlight and, and I also wanted her to have the spotlight for a moment. I was very intentional and deliberate and I also didn't want to be another man that does a cookbook based on the recipes of their mums and then pretend they magically figured all this stuff out. It's like, that's 90% of men. So I really love the fact my mum's name's on the book with me and it's our book. And I love celebrating that with her and telling those stories together. And it's my way of also connecting to my mum. It's cooking. And the other thing we connect through is a love of violent action films. She's, oh, I love violent action she films. She loves her Van Damme. What? She loves her Stallone. She loves her Schwarzenegger. She you should loves... join our WhatsApp group. We've got a John Claude Van Damme <laughs> WhatsApp group where we talk constantly about bad action films. My mum would love it. So, But it has been a way of, of building that connection. And... You know, my parents went through so much trauma. My sister and I then obviously carry those experiences as well. And part of healing that is about going back to things like your culture and yeah. your food. I think it's yeah. such a beautiful offering. I'd love to get my hands on a copy, but just reading through the review on Broadsheet, which was excellent, and hearing about some of the fine items in it, Spanakopita, um, Moussaka in the yeah. mix. So I'm pretty new to Greek food, I've got to admit, but my, my journey is accelerating. And Kolotopita? Yeah, beautifully said. And it's all vegan and I vegetarian. Yesterday. It's all vegan and vegetarian. And, and I also wanted to profile the fact that Greek food is actually incredibly rich and diverse, contrary to what yeah. we get here in Melbourne. Yep. And all the profits that I'm making from it have all gone back to the ASOC to provide food security. So we've, we're, we're on track. I'm hoping by the end to have raised a quarter of a million dollars. Wow. Um, we're just at 211 so far. So Phenomenal. So yeah. it's selling well. It's selling. It's a bestseller, which has been really heartening. Yep. And people have been incredibly generous. So it's out in Australia and New Zealand, and it's heading into the UK, the US, and Canada on the 6th of February as well, which will be exciting. How good at cooking do you have to be to effectively use it? No experience needed. Wow. That's now more no, appealing for but, me. But, but, but I've been quite serious. I think I think it's wonderful to see the rise of all these cooking shows and cooking books, but sometimes they're made in such a way that feels inaccessible and unaffordable. And how am I going to get all these ingredients? What I love about Greek cooking is most of those recipes, you could grow that food in your own garden. In fact, I shot that cookbook in my mum's kitchen. I grew all that those veggies in her backyard. Uh, and you can do it cheaply. It's affordable. It's accessible. And... Uh, it's actually the first time ever in my life that I actually had to document the recipe because up until now, everything was cooked mitomati with the eye. And the recipe is just a guide. Like some of the most best dishes are, here's a bit of silver bean and spinach, a bit of rice and onion, and you've got beautiful spanakorizo. You know, it's not it's not hard. So I mean it when I say you do not need to be an experienced cook. And cooking is in a competition. It shouldn't be stressful. It should be pleasure. Yeah. I'm I'm new to cooking and I must say I'm absolutely loving it. And, yeah. and, and the difference, I, mean, I think for me, the love 
and welcoming that it generates. Yeah. When I was reading um, some of the um, background on you, your work and creating the cookbook, really resonated to me because I think you you put in this. You know, some people would think about cooking as work, and I, I certainly did for a little mm. while. But then when I started to play around with recipes, get creative, mm. and then create something that really nourishes your family, and then they ask you questions, they're really grateful, everyone's happy, you feel good about yourself. Um, it's just a it's a wonderful thing to be doing and to put your time into. The other thing you touch on, it's beautifully said, is how important it is as men to be cooking. Yeah, I, well said. I think no matter all the progress of feminism relationships in the home still remain so unequal and so gendered and men miss out on so much by not being in the kitchen that part of the soft side of our masculinity yeah. that nurturing side that loving side yeah. that, that we often don't hold on to or gets lost for the pressures of being a real man yeah and all those toxic ideas of masculinity that i really wanted to encourage in this book more and more men to cook and i did it with my mum for the purpose of kind of getting you know um, men to think about their relationship with their mums as well and about the importance of sh of, of cooking. And, yep. and you watch that transformational thing. Think about even what you just said there, mm. how different that dynamic is in your home and in your social network when you're the one cooking. Yeah, and it's actually funny because people get surprised. Like um, I, I said to my, my wife um, the other week, I, I want to be the main chef now. Like mm. I want to take over. She's a cardiologist. She works very long mm. hours. Um, and for myself, I just – I'm enjoying it so much that I'm happy to take it on every night and just start Love doing it. it. And then, you know, people sort of, I think, hear and see that and they're surprised. Yeah. Um, not just because of my bad history of not doing enough around the house, <laughs> but just to sort of see that flip a little bit. And, yeah. and I hope we get to a stage where that's really not a surprise to see a man doing something like that. And that's what, how it should be. But unfortunately, at the moment, in reality, it's it's not it's not what we see happening. Yeah. Most of that burden falls onto, onto women. Mm. And I think men are missing something quite profound Big there. Big time. By in that, and, I, and you know when you talk to men out of the safety of the bigger male group, men love the, the idea of spending more time with their children, more time cooking, yep. more time nurturing. And when men are doing that, what do you see? You see less mental health issues, you see less depression, less yep. loneliness, less anxiety in men. Yep. So I can't encourage that enough. And, and, and boys and men need to see positive uh, Masculinity, they need to see positive male role models more yeah. than ever before, and there's not enough of them out there. I had a great relationship moment last night where I cooked a pasta bake because mm. it's beautiful. Mm, it's got delicious. lovely ingredients. It's got zucchini, eggplant, uh, lots of yum-yums in it. And it was the third attempt last night, and I thought, this is definitely my best dish so far. <laughs> we had someone over for dinner, and then I said, oh, critical test. I looked over to my wife and just sort of looked at her face, and I said, do you think this is better than the last one? She goes, oh, I think it's slightly worse than the last one. She listed the reasons, but then she had three bowls. So, you know, you get the best of both worlds. As long as I keep eating, I'm happy. Always follow the tummy. The plate will tell you the truth. <laughs> exactly. The reviews are meaningless. Look what follows. Exactly. Um, so one really profound concept um, that I think came up in, in one of the interviews I watched that you were in was just that idea of um, – being drawn to others who feel invisible mm. and sort of what that means to you and how it shapes your purpose. Yeah. I, I think when I was 18, I found myself at a real crossroads of, you know, high school wasn't much easier than primary school. I felt really isolated, low self-esteem, low self-worth, a classic thing of a young man where you're like at a crossroads where part of you wishes you weren't alive and part of you doesn't know, you know, what are you going to do with this? Um, and as I've written and spoken about before, I kind of knew I had all this love in me 
but didn't feel a sense of being loved myself. Not that my, my parents gave me lots of love, I just didn't feel lovable. And I wanted to find a way to experience love by giving it to others. That was my way of kind of finding a way for love to meet me halfway. And from 18 to 28, I went and volunteered in almost two dozen charities. And every one of those charities had the same thing in common, which was connecting to people that felt invisible. Uh, one of my favorite memories was working at a homeless men's shelter and um, I became a qualified massage therapist and I ran for four years a free massage clinic. And it was a, one, one of the experiences that stayed with me the most because I'd be working with these men who had, men would come in, lie on the table and they'd be like, I've just come out of prison. I've been sleeping rough on the streets. I've been um, beaten just last week. And as they're getting a massage, these men that look as rough as guts are suddenly like little lambs in your hands. And all the men kept talking about, this is the first time I've been touched in years where someone's not hurting me or somebody's seeing me. That's hard to hear. That's hard to hear. It's hard to hear, but so important because we don't tell these stories about men either. And, and I remember how much I loved being in that space with men because you see that cycle of violence around what happens if we don't experience safety. And if we don't experience safe touch and, and love. And so anyone that's kind of that, um, all my work has always been about those that are at the margin, because I've always identified, it's always like, the, you know, seeing, thinking it could have been my grandparents or my, or my parents in search of support, but also identifying with what it felt like as a, as a, as a boy where you felt vulnerable and scared and, and terrified of the world and going, I know what it's like to be, feel alone. Yeah. I know what it's like to feel scared and I'm drawn to standing by people that are that have been left behind. And so, look, we're, we're 20 minutes odd into the episode now, but I feel like it's a good time as any to ask mm. you about sort of founding the ASRC because yeah. I have seen that. Um, I was amazed at sort of all the volunteer experience that you've done and mm. including the massage therapy mm. and the places that you've been and all mm. the um, disadvantage and inequity that you've seen and what you've been a part of. And, and then I was really impressed because I saw that um, unlike most uh, millennials, Gen Zs and whatnot, there's only one LinkedIn experience, which is basically starting and being the CEO for so long, for 28 years? 20, uh, 22 and a half years. I, start, half. I started it when I was 20. Yeah. I had no idea, you know, when people, you know, at 28, suddenly you're the CEO of your own charity. I had no clue what I was doing. Pretty cool, right? It's, 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 I feel blessed. <laughs> like how lucky I am. I, uh, and over the last 22 and a half years, yeah, it began as, as a, as a TAFE project at a uni that I was teaching at at the time. My students had to do a, something practical for class. They were struggling to find someone to take them on placement one day a week for eight weeks. I was, you know, volunteering, helping some young refugees that had been tortured in their countries through a, a nun of the Red Cross had asked me if I would help these these young refugees. Found out there was no way people could get access to something as simple as food. Had a beautiful friend named Pablo and 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 Diana who had a little organic grocery store in Footscray. And Pablo said, look, I've got this little shop front, maybe twice the size of the room we're in right now. Um, you can have it if you want. And I said to my students, what do you think about, um, if you can't find someone to take you on, what do you think about us starting our own charity? Uh, and I wanted to teach them, and this is the message I keep saying to young people now, you can change the world at any point, you've just got to start. And and eight weeks from that conversation, the ACC was born on the 8th of June, 2001. And at the time, it was a real struggle. But a few months later, Tampa happens, where John Howard stops a boat of 434 refugees from landing on shore. We will decide who comes here and the manner in which they come. And suddenly, we went from three people turning up to help to 30, to 300, to at its peak. I remember booking at the Melbourne Town Hall uh, for volunteer information nights. Like people are hungry for change. And over the last 22 and a half years, we've helped over 30,000 refugees. We've done it with no support from the federal government. We're fiercely independent. 
And we're a place of welcome and a place of hope and compassion. So whether it's providing food or legal assistance or housing or medical care or nurturing and supporting the next generation of young refugee leaders or fighting for systemic change, the whole idea of the ACC, and I think why it resonates with people after this long is it's a charity where everyone is welcome. It takes no federal government funding. It's fiercely outspoken. It's actually independent. And it steps into the spaces that are deemed the too hard, the too risky, the too difficult. And mm. we go there every day and have since we've started. We're there to fill the gaps and to go where no one else will go. And so he's not taking federal government funding a sort of principal decision so that you can advocate freely? Yeah. So when I was 28, I'd, I'd worked in all these amazing charities as a volunteer and incredible work being done. But what I saw was, despite all of that, there were three lessons I took from my volunteer work. One all these amazing charities are having to band-aid the issues because they take federal government funding so they can't bite the hand that feeds them. Two, they all work in silos. They do little bits and pieces, but none of them are holistic. And three, they often make it so difficult for people to get help unintentionally. So when I started it, it's harder these days, but when we started, it was like, we're going to help anyone that turns up at our doorstep. We're never going to take government funding and we're going to be holistic. That is, we're going to understand you can't just feed the person. That person needs a roof over their head. If the person's hungry and homeless, then you can't engage them in learning English or getting a job. Everything is interconnected. And so that idea of being holistic, strength-based, seeing refugees as resilient, resourceful, and independent. And that's what it's allowed us to do work like help play an important role in getting kids off Nauru, helping pass Medivac, um, saving thousands of people's lives through the advocacy work we do, taking on the government you know, at the high court, whatever it might be, we're able to be fearless and, and take on whoever's in power, whether it's labor or coalition, we, 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 we go just as hard. And yeah. I think that's, that's really lucky. And that's sort of the issue. It's the number two reason people donate to us is, I know if I give to you, you're never going to sell out or shut up. And we don't. That's fantastic. And so does that mean that you're relying very heavily on the community for support and philanthropy? Yeah. yeah 90% of our funding comes from the public. Wow. It comes from the community, from philanthropy and tens of thousands of everyday people. Most of those are working class, lower middle class, middle class. It's just... You got everything from people giving. I'm giving a little bit for my pension, or a little bit for my, you know, study. I'm giving for my part time job. Like the generosity of people is just breathtaking. And um, for all of the shameful things that have been done to refugees over the last couple of decades, the story that I love talking about is actually the incredible kindness that's out there, the incredible compassion, the courage and resilience of the refugees themselves, and the generosity. There are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Australians who actively every year whether it's donating or taking political action, you really care about a fair go for refugees and, and care about welcoming refugees into this country. What's the latest? Uh, you talked about high court action before. Um, I know that um, there's been some significant change, yeah. labor rolling through pretty quickly, some some laws around yeah. immigration detention, rolling that back, which has resulted in some fairly half-baked approaches to things that have been uh, pretty detrimental to many people. Um, what have and, you seen? And a lot of this has got lost in these awful Murdoch media headlines. So in simple terms, the High Court ruled uh, that Australia could not just lock up refugees and migrants forever if they've got no way of removing that person. You can't just keep them locked up forever. 
bringing us in line with every other developed country in the world. As in, you, you can't lock up people forever it's anywhere else in the world. It's kind of bizarre that that's yeah. a law yeah. here. Exactly. I mean, maybe most people don't know that. Yeah. And the consequences of mandatory detention brought in by Paul Keating back in 1992 is that it has resulted in dozens and dozens of people dying in detention centers. It's yep. what's allowed us to lock up children in detention centers. It's devastated thousands of people. So this, this decision lands and it results in people being released. And Peter Dutton tried to cradle this hysteria. The government lost its courage and its nerve because some of the people released had criminal histories. A handful, very serious things, and others, things that are like low-level offending. But the point being that all these men had actually served their time. That is, they'd gone to jail, served their time, and often twice over by the time they actually were getting released. Every other Australian, when they break the law, they serve their time, they look back out. We believe in rehabilitation. We believe in second goes. And what's been really interesting, what's got lost in here is, oh, but not if you're a refugee or a migrant. Yeah. You don't deserve a second go. And so the government rushed through this legislation where we're working with men now who are facing one to five years jail for not being home by 10 o'clock at night. Yes, I read that. 10 till 6, ankle bracelet. It's very tight. And ankle bracelets where they're just for life. And some of these men haven't ever committed an offense or have committed things that you'd get a a good behavior bond for. Like it is racist. Um, it is a fractured social cohesion because it demonizes and it says, oh, no, no, if you're a refugee, you're gonna, you're more likely to offend. If you're a refugee, yeah. you don't get a second go. And what it brings up, what it brings up from the surface is the ugliness of races in this yes. country around, oh, these people should be sent back. And it's like, well, they can't be sent back because they're actually refugees and they'll be killed in that yep. country. So at some point, We've got to let these men get on with their lives, just like we let 30,000 Australians a year who come out of prisons get on with their lives. Yeah. I mean, the the goal always has to be rehabilitation. Um, it's not uh, punishment, but when you think about the impact um, to an individual who's already been through so much to have the stigma of an ankle bracelet. Um, well, the odds of, of getting a job. Or curfew. Or settling. We had one person where they didn't want to see their child because they're so ashamed of their child seeing this ankle bracelet. It, it goes back down to... When we feed fear of difference, I, you know, one of the things I keep trying to say to politicians is every time refugees are dehumanized and demonized, I need you to understand that ripples through. That means all migrants and refugees become under attack. Yeah. And we saw with the referendum with First Nations people where something as simple as we're inviting you to recognize us, to hear us, to see us, this profound gesture of welcome. Of, of generosity of Indigenous people, and we said no to them. And what led that? Racism and misinformation. So at some point, we're, we're at a crossroads as a country. Are we going to go down a path of hate, fear, and division, or are we going to go down a path of unity? In Melbourne, home to 211 different nations, I think it's 165 different faiths, 230 different languages, one of the most multicultural cities in the world, and oh, what a surprise, one of the most livable, prosperous, and successful. I wonder if our Indigenous history and our multiculturalism is a reason for that? Yeah. Like, how do you think we got to be such an incredible city and and, and in such an incredible country? And it's exhausting. It's exhausting when you can talk to an economist, you can talk to a sociologist, you can talk to anyone in a community, and they will tell you refugees and migrants enrich community. That's, that's a universal truth globally. And it's just exhausting to constantly be on the back foot going, see me as a human being. And after 22 and a half years, the one exhausting part of the job is having to keep saying to people, how about you actually stop and recognize these refugees could be you? And if you were in their situation, you would do the exact same thing. Yeah. 
and we're talking about people, and this is a moral issue and not a political issue. And that's what's lost now, especially with predatory politicians like the Peter Duns of this world who seek to exploit our fear and our insecurities, as though it's some single mum from Afghanistan with four kids that's outbidding you at an auction, you know? As though they're the reason you can't, you know, make ends meet rather than big banks and big supermarkets that are price gouging and making record profits when most Australians are struggling to put food on the table. Like, who do you think is the enemy here? It's not poor people. Yeah, I think um, there's choices to be made for all of us yeah. and politicians and society around, do we want to be a fear-based society yeah. or do we want to be a compassion-oriented society? That's a big difference, yeah. Totally different. It changes everything. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Feast for Freedom because I think that's really exciting. This has been going on for a number of years. So Feast for Freedom is this really beautiful uh, fundraising event that we have, but it's much more than a fundraising event. It's, it's the idea is we ask people to host a feast anywhere across Australia, anywhere in the world, uh, and the, and invite friends to come along, family to come along, and they workplaces to come along, and they chip in what they can for that for that feast, and it, and that goes back to the ACC to provide a seat at the table and food for refugee families. But what we love about it, what sets it apart, is one. The heroes of the story are refugees themselves. So we have these hero chefs, which are refugees who generously gift their recipes. And so for the refugees involved, they're being celebrated. They are the hero of the story. Like, we're inviting you to share our meals and our culture and a sense of pride for refugees to see hundreds and hundreds of feasts all around the country of their food that they grew up loving and sharing fills people with such pride. Two... Um, when people come together with a feast, we equip people with information where they can start a safe conversation about refugees. And we often say, invite that uncle or parent or friend that is anti-refugee <laughs> because food is a safe way to start a dialogue going, oh, this food's amazing, isn't it? Do you know? It was- I wonder how it got here. Yeah, how it got here and these <laughs> recipes. And, it's a re- and we give little simple conversation starters that allow people to get more educated. And the third thing it does, it raises critical funds in the middle of a cost of living crisis where the families we feed at our food banks in, in Footscray and Dandenong in Victoria, most of them have no right to work under this government as well, have no Medicare and have no access to Centrelink. And so we are their supermarket. And so Feast is a really beautiful way of actually telling a refugee story from a place of strength, from a place of celebration, mm. from a place of heroism and from a place of shared joy. And it's a really positive way and it's a really soft and gentle way for people to connect to the issue that isn't confronting for people and to invite their broader networks and what what we see every year is that social network of people who get engaged about refugee issues gently keeps growing and growing and growing as a consequence of of being part of it so we invite workplaces homes businesses everyone to go hey why don't you host a feast and you don't have to again have much experience the recipes are easy they're affordable and we just ask, invite people and put on a put on a feed together. Tell us about the heroes this year, because I here I might have a chance to try Venezuelan food for the first time. Well, Venezuelan food is one of the things that is so rare to actually be able to enjoy and and be part of. And I think it is the it is a chance to enjoy incredible th- food from Venezuela. Like a lot of people don't realize how many refugees are coming from Venezuela and just the scale of displacement that's happening there. And if I think about, I think we've been running for almost a decade now the feast. And over these 10 years, whether it's Venezuelan food this year, Ethiopian, Eritrean, Iranian, Iraqi, Afghani, a Palestinian um, last year, it is a chance to actually be connected to this incredible uh, story. This, you know, you asked me at the beginning my origin story, you, you meet all these amazing chefs 
home cooks or professional chefs potentially in their country. And all of them have these, these shared stories of courage and resilience and hope. And the thing I'm always humbled by this year as I'm every year is the, the, the graciousness and generosity of people to gift those recipes to us. Like to be in a country. Yeah, it, it really yeah. is. It's a big deal. It's yeah. from the heart. Yeah, it's from the heart. And you think about in a country that actually hasn't welcomed them and hasn't protected them and looked after them. And so, you know, you're able to go to our, our website, Feast for Freedom, just Google it, and you can meet all the beautiful hero chefs. You can see the recipes. You can sign up. And whether you raise 50 bucks or 500 bucks, it all makes a difference. It can be done on any budget. It's for us... What's even more important than the money is people just coming together and gathering around this issue. And also, I keep saying to people, when people join things like our Feast for Freedom, we're able to go back to politicians and go, do you know we had 500 feasts this year? Do you know we had 10,000 people participate? Because mm. politicians are always asking themselves every year, oh, do people care about refugees anymore? And if they don't, well, we're not going to do anything. And that's the reality. So these sort of events also help us signal to government, people want action, people want change, and that change isn't coming anywhere near as fast as is needed right now in this country. I think it sounds amazing. And there's obviously the numbers impact, but then the, the, the like actual impact that you talk about as well, like connection, understanding, advocacy. But just looking at some of the figures from the website, nearly a thousand feasts to date, uh, yeah. raising nearly $400,000 and producing over 142,000 um, meals for people seeking asylum and their yeah. families. That was last year's impact. Yeah. And so we would, you know, it'd be great. Well, that's just last that year? Was just, oh, that was just last year. Oh, wow. Year's. Okay. Oh, that was just last year's. We raised just over 400 grand in last year's feast. And we wow. would love to beat that this year. Um, it is in, it is incredible the impact and the difference that it actually makes. And so we're encouraging people now, as people are hungry to gather post the pandemic and- Great time for it's it. It's a great time for it to come together and to and to share a meal and um, and to celebrate refugees and to start a conversation. We need connection more than ever. And I look at my phone, which I'm wired to, you know, you know, two thirds of the day. That's not connecting me. That doesn't connect you in a way of sitting across the table from someone mm. and breaking bread together. So we encourage people sign up, make a difference. You're not helpless. You're powerful. And more than ever, we need more and more people just showing that they still care and that they're engaged and they want to see a compassionate, kind and welcoming Australia for refugees. I think it's so needed. And when you look at the figures, um, not just in the um, migrant communities, but also just around social isolation mm-hmm. in society, and I think it's also one of the um, the really bad legacies of COVID that we don't discuss very much, but just people being less um, socially connected. More than ever. Like it's like I'm, you know, there are so many beautiful people I come across on social media and people are so kind and generous. There's also this incredible dark side, like thousands of people have had to block who are like, you know, wishing literally death on you. And, and it's, I think that's an interesting byproduct of the pandemic as well. It's not that it wasn't there, but how anonymity breeds that what is coming out of the anonymous as in the anger that is just bubbling there underneath the surface. But also we are in some ways we feel more connected than ever before. And yet you see body dysphoria rates higher than ever before. Uh, We see anxiety in young people higher than ever before, sense of isolation. The biggest killer of people is loneliness. It kills more people than anything else in the world. I think there's some crazy stats on uh, loneliness, like uh, it increases your all-cause mortality rate uh, considerably every day that you you know you every, don't have a social connection every day. And so I think we have this false sense of connection. It's not that the, there isn't something beautiful in, in our online community, but we we have we have lost the art of of the art of gathering, mm. the art of just coming together and and connecting with each other. And I think people are desperate for that. And I think that loneliness and that anxiety and that anger is a byproduct of people feeling 
disconnected and people feeling alone and anxious to even be in social spaces and to connect with people. So we need to find a way to reconnect. And this is one of the really nice ways of doing so. And coming together to eat may be the answer. Well, I think coming together, I think once you start sharing a meal together, you can start a conversation. You know, that thing about at that table, you're all equals. And at that table, you're all able to start a conversation together where you can start gently sharing. And I always just say to young people about, you know, when it comes to that sense of overwhelm with the state of the world and the anxiety of facing into this world, I always just keep encouraging people to take that first step in the real world. Wherever you can start, just start somewhere in following your passions and dreams. Because otherwise, that sense of just being trapped in that loneliness or that anxiety or that uncertainty or that overwhelm, the world doesn't get any better if we're sitting there as bystanders. The world could be a tough place, but it's also a beautiful place, but it only changes if we have a crack, if we have a go. Mm. I mean, that sounds blunt, but that's the truth. You, no one's changing anything as a bystander. You've got to kind of roll up your sleeves and get in there. And yes, there's a place for the online world, but nothing beats the real world and, and being part of it. So well said. And look, amazing journey that ASRC has been on growth-wise. I mean, in the midst of challenges like COVID, cost of living crisis, where you're heavily reliant on donations and the generosity of the public. What do you think has been sort of part of the the secret sauce that has enabled you to not only get through such difficult periods, but to thrive as an organization? Well, yeah, it's a challenging one. The organization now is financially 10 times its size in 10 years uh, right now. But last year, it almost came undone. We almost had to close our doors because we almost doubled during the pandemic to meet unprecedented demand like housing, food, medicine. It was We were one of the few charities in Melbourne that physically stayed open. It was in the office every day through the pandemic with, with key, key staff who were incredible during that time. All our staff were. And what kept us growing, but was we kept going back to purpose. And so people keep giving. So we, we were, you know, weeks from having to close our doors and we had to raise five $5.2 million to make sure we didn't. And we were like, are we going to be able to raise this? We're in the middle of a cost of living crisis. So we just went out and said, look, donations are down 45%. You know, people are struggling to put food on their own tables. And in 19 days, people gave that money, 22,500 people across Australia. And and when I asked people why, they said, this organization is too important um, to not be here. You you stand for things that very few stand for. You do things that very few are willing to do. You change things in ways that matter to us. And I think why the organization has been able to grow to the scale that it has and for people to have saved it last year is there's a lot of love and trust in the organization because what it always goes back to is why and people can see its purpose being lived. And I think what people are craving more than ever before, you look at traditional institutions are collapsing and people are looking to celebrity to find their purpose and meaning. They're feeling disillusioned when the celebrities, most of them don't stand for anything because why would they? They're celebrities. They don't need to. They're not meant to. Yep. You know, that's what our political leaders are meant to do. Those people lose faith in politics and institutions like that and government, they're looking elsewhere. And I think what people are most looking for is just sincerity, authenticity, honesty, genuine leadership. And they're looking for places that still stand for something, whether it's a community organization or a business or a group. They, they want people that actually stand for something. And those things are ironically, I think at a time of, of so much growth in the charity sector and the business sector and online world, I think those 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 places are far and few between. Well said. Now, you're helping over 7,000 people a year with mm-hmm. the tremendous range of programs that you offer. We want that to continue. We want to use the power of food to cultivate welcome, belonging, social and community connection. Mm-hmm. A couple of calls to action here. So people can buy the cookbook. I always say to people, donate, advocate, 
participate. Yep. So donate. Uh, yep. Um, Free Looks in here, sit at my tables in bookstores everywhere, and all my profits continue to go to the ACC. Sign up for Feast for Freedom or go to acc.org.au. We'd love people to become monthly donors now, even if it's five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month. If you can afford it, that would be amazing. Um, advocate. Go onto our website. We've got lots of campaigns right now, whether it's trying to get refugees out of offshore detention centers or a safety net and fair go for people. There are campaigns and petitions you can get involved in. And if you're based in in Melbourne, um, participate. We have monthly volunteer recruitment. Go to our website, ASRC. Just Google that. And we are always looking for volunteers from remote to on-site to weekends to normal hours to after hours we are looking for people from every skill and background most important we're just looking for people that care with compassion and passion fantastic so we're going to pop all those in the show notes philoxenia feast for freedom uh become a supporter donor visit the website um and the other thing just to touch on briefly is um corporate partnerships yeah you offer that as well we do we have a dedicated person who who looks after that and we're always looking for more corporates to partner with us in three ways one to create employment opportunities we have some of those talented resourceful resilient people and want people to break out of poverty we want people to stand on their own two feet and to be working two we find workplaces culture diversity inclusion thrives when they connect to our organization because people young people especially are looking for workplaces that are about more than just money and we, we are always looking for sponsorship, you know, workplace giving, but most importantly, partnerships with businesses who are, who want to have a social purpose, who want to be about more than just brand. And, and I always say to businesses, if you are purpose led and, and values driven, you're actually going to be far more successful. And what we love is we're, we're grateful. We have some wonderful partnerships where people partner with us because they actually understand that leading with values and standing for something is actually what, um, results in yeah, better retention for their staff, better engaged staff yep. who are more proud going, oh, wow, I work somewhere that's more than just a paycheck. Mm. If I saw the logo on their website, I'd be very attracted. So yeah. that's a that's a huge value add, just brand alignment-wise. Oh, exactly. So we're always looking for that. And so we're always looking for ethical businesses to partner with us. Fantastic. Well, we've got a couple of uh, about five different things that are popping in the show notes as links. So we'll do that. I want to thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolute honor. Um, if people want to connect with you and learn, learn a bit more about your work, head to the ASRC website. Head to the ASRC website if you want to connect to, to me on, on socials or the ASRC on socials. We're on everything, yep. whether it's Insta, Threads. What's your favorite? Where, where's, where are you most accessible? Oh, probably Instagram, because I also share my cooking there. Yep. But ASUS is on everything. You can find ASUS on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, you can find it on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn if yep. you're a professional. Yep. You can find me on TikTok. There's no dancing. You're everywhere. There's lots of TikTok. You're everywhere and here. It's yes. amazing. <laughs> you have to be these days. <laughs> Thank you so much, Con. My pleasure. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.